Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. Today's conversation is the first of hopefully several conversations revolving around film adaptations of video games. My guests and I will be discussing whether these adaptations are faithful to their beloved source material and whether or not the films are able to stand on their own as entertaining horror films. And for this horror head, there's nowhere else to begin than with Christoph Gans' 2006 adaptation of Silent Hill, in which Rose, played by Radha Mitchell, brings her adoptive stepdaughter Sharon to the sleepy and mysterious town of Silent Hill, which Sharon has talked about in her increasingly dangerous bouts of sleepwalking. But soon after the pair arrive, they're in a car accident and separated, forcing Rose to venture into the belly of the beast that is Silent Hill in an attempt to find Sharon while surviving the town's own demons. And joining me to chat video game adaptations in Silent Hill is returning friend of the show, Michael Pemintel. In addition to being a staff writer for The Pit, a heavy metal site, Michael is a pop culture critic who's written for the likes of Dread Central, Bloody Disgusting, EGM, The Funimation Blog, and more. So without further ado, Michael, welcome back to the show, man. Jay, it's always a pleasure, man. I'm excited to be on here, and I'm excited as hell to be talking about this movie. Um, video game adaptations are an absolute favorite pastime of mine. So I am really excited to be talking about this film with you. Yeah, man, this is certainly a uh, an infamous sort of subgenre of horror, but, you know, of film in general, right? Because of all the adaptations, we're going to be talking primarily about horror, but, you know, video game adaptations are something that has, you know, moved to many different genres, right? We had uh, Uncharted released, uh, it was either this year or at the end of last year. Yep. And I just think it's great to see, and you know, while I maybe myself am not a fan of a lot of the adaptations, it's nice just to see that video games I think have gotten, you know, enough of modern sort of fanfare coming into pop culture in a way that like, oh, we're not just going to get the most hardcore games adapted for these niche little audiences. We can kind of see people tell stories that appeal to lots of people or films that, you know, have a variety of interests that people, uh, you know, are interested in. No, yeah, there's a, there's a, as times are going, as the times are going further, there's an incredible more variety to video game adaptations. I think it's really interesting. You'll have to, I apologize. I can't remember the, re the release date of it, but it's wild to think about how far we've come from the live action Super Mario Brothers movie. And yeah. to the fact that in 2023, <laughs> We're kind of, we're getting the Super Mario Brothers movie that I would have thought we would have gotten sooner. Um, I, I to me, I think it's just I'm really excited to see um where that mode of storytelling goes. I remember someone on it was something I read on Twitter being like, you know, once Hollywood tries to dry up comic book movies, watch us get a, like an uptick stream of video game movies. So I will always be for it. I've always had a soft spot for these kinds of uh, works of art. I've always felt that, um, because as you alluded to earlier, they've always gotten a harsh amount of criticism. And I think more so um, because I think a lot of people project onto them because video games are a very, and I know this sounds maybe a little like low shit, bro, but like video games are a very personal experience, but they're very personal in the sense that you and I are the ones playing our adventure. And it's tough to see 
your adventure being played out by someone else. Um, but even the worst of these movies, I think in some way, and well, not the worst, worst of these movies, but even those movies <laughs> that aren't super great still do a decent job more so than we want to admit at being good adaptation. Yeah. And, you know, the idea for this sitting down and chatting with you about, you know, video game adaptations for film uh, kind of came from where I find that a lot of the best ideas for projects come from, which is you and I kind of just bullshitting not only about horror and movies, but our love of games. And to start with Silent Hill for the first film for us to chat about, you know, like I said in the intro, it's a no brainer because it is one of those films that I think has if anything, you know, grown a greater appreciation from fans, not only of horror or video games, but, you know, even Silent Hill fans, I think, for the most part, not to say that, you know, all Silent Hill fans love it. I'm sure there are plenty that take uh, issue with maybe some of the elements that are adapted and whatnot. But, you know, for a place to begin in our journey in video game adaptations to film, this feels like the right place to just because you and I, again, have a great love for the series and just yes. the fact that, you know, this is a film that it seems was able to get the one element that I am always looking for in adaptations. It got it right in that it captures the look of the games in a way that mm. feels authentic, that feels like it's respectful of the source material. And we'll of course dive into that and much more, but um, in starting like for you, what makes a good adaptation of a video game? Well, you know, it's funny enough, I don't mean to be re redundant about it, but it, it's feel. Um, how do you capture feel in a film when the experience of the game is you partaking in play? And a lot of that comes down to environment. Um, and in the case of Silent Hill, I mean, atmosphere from the cinematography to the visuals to the score downright captures Silent Hill. You could almost impose that Silent Hill, the movie of 2006, captures the vibe of Silent Hill 1, 2, and 3. So I think feel is very important. And and excuse me for this, because it might be a little vague, but I'll elaborate in a second, but also vibe. You know, um, a movie that, God, I hope my memory is correct here, that came out this year is Sonic 2. And Sonic 2 doesn't necessarily play off any sort of Sonic story in a video game other than first meeting Knuckles but it captures the essence of that sonic zaniness right um you know there, there's so many things like tomb raider with um you know angelina jolie captures the thrill of adventure and you stepping into that first dungeon so that feel is there um again there there's always going to be that dissonance because you are the one who has played these games but feels important um i think something that tends to hurt these films is when directors and writers are like, oh, let's make sure we can do a lot of wink and nods towards Easter eggs. Now, Easter eggs are fun. I'm going to say for the record, they are fun. I like them. I want them in movies. But there's also relying on them. And that's not a good adaptation. You know, you can't make an adaptation of Moby Dick and have the whale show up one time like there's your Easter egg, you know. <laughs> um you just like, you know, it's it's not enough to have Lara Croft, Croft with like, um, and I apologize for my ignorance, but like, you know, her iconic dual pistols um, or handguns, you know, there needs to be that feel. And it does take a good craftsman or, you know, a good art artist to capture that with the direction. And that is why I stand with Silent Hill as like one of the better video game adaptations and also one that captures that feel authentically. 
I mean, those were the two notes that I had for what I look for in a great adaptation, right? It's nailing the look of it and also, you know, having Easter eggs that don't alienate part of the audience, right? Because mm. even if you're making a video game movie of the most popular video game IP, the nature of movies is, is that there's going to be a portion of the audience that's never played the games and is just there for, you know, whatever that trailer has sold them on. And so, you know, the East inclusion of things like Easter eggs, I'm not opposed to, but it is the type of thing where it's like, okay, if you're going to use an Easter egg or have a specific reference to something from the games, it can't be as if this entire scene is orchestrated around that brief moment, which is probably only a couple seconds, because then you have audiences that are kind of like, well, what's the significance of this? Or like, did we need a whole scene for that? Right. It kind of needs to be this thing that accompanies whatever is occurring in the course of the film, but it can't be something that really kind of just like slams the brakes on that momentum that reminds portions of the audience. Oh, well, I would get this if I had played the games, which I would assume the next leap then is, oh, I would enjoy this movie so much more if I had played the games. And that's something I think we'll dig into a little bit more the more we chat about uh, 2006's Silent Hill. Well, good at it. I'm, I'm going to add this one last note because you actually just made an incredible point. Um, a great thing that an adaptation, it I, I won't be as ballsy to say should do, but if it can accomplish this, it should it should be an extension of your gaming experience. Or if it's not an extension of your gaming experience, maybe it motivates you to try out said thing. So either that extension or that motivation, I also think is great for adaptation. But uh, what for you, I guess, well, we've kind of just touched upon that, right? The idea that if you're orchestrating an adaptation around just kind of getting the wink and nod moments of connecting it to the games, that kind of is what definitely hurts those. Um, And I think also one thing that really is apparent that I'm thinking specifically maybe about the Ubol realm of video game adaptations (laughs) of film that, you know, it feels as if like it's just made from the box art, right? He kind of just looks at the front, looks at the back and he's like, oh, I've got an idea of what this is. Yeah. Except then when it actually comes to fruition, it's a film that not only doesn't look as it should, but it has, it lacks the texture of what makes a specific IP so unique, right? I think about something like the Far Cry series, which is like, oh, well, if I put this guy in, you know, I think it's Till Schweiger plays um, Jack in the Far Cry movie. And it's like, oh, well, I'm going to put him in, you know, khaki shorts, a Hawaiian shirt and put a gun in his hand and that'll be Far Cry. But, you know, lacking a lot of texture in that world, the ruggedness, the fact that, you know, in three fourths of those games, you have to relocate your fingers, you rip nails out of your arms, like little touches like that, that make that game unique in a first person shooter, you know, the film itself lacks all of that. So you end up with something that just feels very generic. And we don't have to go down a whole uh, rabbit hole of just why Ubol adaptation films are uh, <laughs> largely missing the mark. Uh, maybe one of those will come up in the future. We'll see. But um, I think in terms of what you find to be a good adaptation, you know, whether it's horror or not, uh, for you, what are a couple of standouts? Ooh, a couple of standouts. Okay, give me a hot second. I want to probably say something that isn't what I already mentioned. Well, while you're thinking, I mean, I'll lead off with, I just saw Werewolves Within within the last Mm. six to seven months for the first time. And that was a game, um, (laughs) that was a game, that was an adaptation of a game that, you know, those, the game itself has little story to it, right? You have the core concept and that's about it. It's a party experience. And the fact that they were able to take that, which lacks what a lot of people look for in video game adaptations, you know, familiar characters, familiar plot beats, familiar setting, and it took what at the end of the day is a party game 
and applying that to a film that understands that and utilizes that to create these really hilarious characters, to intermingle them in a way that it replicates the experience of playing the game. And yet it's probably the one video game you would never assume would ever be adapted. And yet for me, it was a standout because it took the core mechanics of the game and applied it to a film in a way that was not only entertaining, was truthful to the framework of the game. And, you know, it happened to be about uh, a horror murder mystery, which I loved. No, that's actually, that's an amazing one. I feel I feel so bad for saying this, but I never would have thought that, even though that is a game adaptation. My brain, oh, yeah. that is such a good one. Um, you know, I, I feel bad because I have repeated this one on social media multiple times, but I'm just going to repeat it here for the hell of it anyway. Um, my, other than Silent Hill 2006, my favorite video game film adaptation is actually the 90s Mortal Kombat. I think that is actually probably if I'm to be if I'm trying to be honest with myself the best of them all um because there is there is like as Mortal Kombat would eventually go on to get more serious and a little bit more melodramatic over time and like while the gore would also intensify over time um the 90s movie just absolutely captures it, it, it both captures the action and it captures the action and the cheese of the games. And it also, being a 90s film, also meshes in with 90s action cheese and 90s action thrills. And everyone plays that movie so straight, too, even though it's goofy as shit. Um, and that's also a movie where, I, you know, I've noted before, it plays, it, it's overly abundant with Easter eggs. and it, But it plays them perfectly. It uses its Easter eggs effectively, and it provides a story which would technically be very um, thin. Because I was a I was a very small child when I played the first Mortal Kombat, and I wasn't aware of the narrative and too much, and I didn't pay attention to it. So for me, it gave me the characters I love and the vibe I grew up loving, like mashing the buttons and fighting my brother. And it gave me a story in which I could embrace that feel. So to me, that that is easily the first, like that's the first one that comes to mind. I'm also a huge fan of, um, I think it's 2005's Doom. That's another thing too, which I don't want to get too much into right now. Um, but for a game that is mostly you as the avatar and devoid of like trying to project a personality, absolutely captures the vibe of Doom, 100% in my book. Yeah, you know, there's, I'll say, I think there's less adaptations that I think are good and more that I find to be flawed, but have a good amount of merit to them. Um, and, you know, it's not even going to think about some of the ones I consider to be bad, but like ones that I find to be flawed, but enjoyable are films such as, you know, they're pretty recent. It's like the Monster Hunter movie, uh, Welcome mm -hmm. to Raccoon City, which are two films that, you know, I have some pretty serious reservations about overall. But at the same time, there are two films that capitalize on what make those IPs uh, standouts, I think. And we don't have to get into a whole thing about it. But like with Monster Hunter, it really does put a lot of emphasis on having this variety of like kaiju monsters larger than life yes. that I love. It ends up feeling just like, like I said, a kaiju movie. Uh, it doesn't it. And maybe when it delves into like the lore aspect, which I'm not interested in, is where it kind of falls apart for me or from a storytelling perspective. Whoa. Something like Raccoon City, as somebody that's not a fan of a majority of those earlier Resident Evil films, I found felt like Welcome to Raccoon City captured the look of Resident Evil better than it had been in a, you know, more than a handful of years. 
Oh. Granted, some of the other elements I take uh, reservations with, but <laughs> I think that when you're talking about adaptations, and you know, I would say from a mainstream perspective, adaptations of video games for film are largely maligned. And you know, maybe it's because the older I get, maybe don't want to give myself too much credit and say it's wisdom, but you know, <laughs> being able to find elements of these movies that are successful and true to what an adaptation should be, you know, the older I get, the more I'm removed from maybe my angstier teen years. Um, I view them a little more fondly, something like, you know, Doom, which I've only seen the one time, but, you know, I'm looking forward to diving back into. Um, but even something as recent as like Rampage, uh, the Dwayne Johnson movie, which, again, not going to say it's a good movie, but it's a movie that capitalizes on that original premise of the game in a way that really delivers in some scenes in that film. Jay, Jay may I for a hot second? Um, Absolutely. For the sake of you and for people listening, I... I'm going to be obnoxious here because you brought up Rampage. So funny thing about that movie, little Michael Pimentel story for you here. Um, <laughs> I had this awful day job at the time. So for those who, who don't give a shit or for the hell of it, um, I live in Chicago. And so that movie was filmed in Chicago. And so I'm on my way. It's a Saturday morning. I'm off my way to this bullshit job that I'm working at, at the time. I get into my off. I get into the office. I sit down in my chair. I start doing my work. Da, 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 da. And I start hearing like gunfire and I am, I am freaking the fuck out and I, I, I'm scared shitless. And then someone tells me, it's like, oh no, they're just filming some monster movie outside <laughs> and it's fucking rampage. Right. <laughs> so there you go. Sorry, I had to. No, man, that's perfect. I think that they did uh, the entire city of Chicago a disservice by not giving all a heads up about <laughs> mock gunfire ringing through the streets. But no. um yeah, you know, I think, again, like, there are these films that are flawed, and I don't think I would refer to them as good, but I don't think enough people give credit to adaptations when they actually do succeed, because maybe a majority of the time, they're not really delivering a film that is through and through entertaining, or at times, you know, maybe delivering a lesser narrative experience. But yeah. at the end of the day, when you're talking about something like Mortal Kombat, even, you know, the most recent Mortal Kombat movie, which I know okay. a lot of people didn't enjoy from a, you know, uh, quotes, gameplay perspective of those kills and those fights. You know, I had fun with that. I found it to be entertaining. So, you know, I'm the type of person that I would sounds like you are as well, where it's like if an adaptation is able to really capture the feel, the vibes, the texture of those, I'm willing to cut it a little more slack because this sl small slice of the film that's able to actually do justice to the source material by and far is more impressive to me than them trying to f like have some filler narrative that a lot of the time was never the reason why I fell in love with these games, playing them in the arcade as a kid, playing them when, you know, my SNES at home with my brother. I never played Mortal Kombat for the story oh. or for, you know, the personalities of the fighters. I was always <laughs> interested in, you know, ripping my brother's head off when he played Sub-Zero or, you know, something along those lines. Well, that's a, and I know this is so generic to say, and we won't name names here, but like, I think that's where a lot of the flack comes from with video game adaptations. Um, you know, it's just that I think when it comes to these kinds of adaptations, whoever is overseeing the production or what have you will be like, listen, what's more important is the people are going to come because it's this game. So as long as you get the Easter egg in there, put some shit in between. And yeah. so like it, what I'm, so what I'm trying to get at is like, while it's generic to say that I do think what ends up hurting these movies and what has caused such a long 
consistent issue with people's views of them is that, again, I know it's a little kind of generic statement, a lot of them suffer from bad writing. A lot of them suffer from like really surface level stories. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when you're, <laughs> I don't know, having a level of perspective just in terms of like going into certain movies, I guess I'm at the point where I can be like, I'm not expecting this to be interesting from a storytelling perspective. 100%. I don't care how cheesy some of these characters are. I just want to see whether or not they're able to take the visual medium of games and specifically, you know, tied to something like a Silent Hill. And are they able to replicate it on screen in a way that justifies basically that they want to adapt this to film? Because in my experience, it's always th those types of movies that are just like, well, you know, we have access to this IP. We're just going to give people something that we think is what that game should be on film. Yes. And more often than not, those types of projects, they tell on themselves within the first 15 minutes, whether or not they've done the legwork, whether or not this is somebody that grasps the material that they're trying to adapt. Um, but, you know, before we dive into Silent Hill, the film, let's chat about, you know, Silent Hill, the game series for a little bit. Um, for you, like, what about Silent Hill at, in general, right? The series as a whole makes it stand out from other survival horror titles for you. It's, you know, to me, um, what something I love about video games, the main reason, I mean, one story. I love video games. I just tend to find a lot of stories in video games that I like. It's just always been the medium where I've been attracted to the most stories. When it comes to video games, my favorite thing about a video game, and the main, and one of the big reasons I may get into a game is because of atmosphere and environment. Um, I love, love, love walking sims. I love exploring environments. I've always been like a sandbox person. Like, you give me a Red Dead... Um, you even give me something like a paratopic, I will just try to stand in places and soak it up. And like, I don't, I love picking up on vibes. I mean, that's how I am also with music. I listen to like a lot of drone and uh, electronic music that's atmospheric, minimal stuff, uh, or on the opposite end, I listen to a lot of harsh noise. <laughs> so atmosphere is very much a big thing for me. And there's no other, well, there's, okay. There's very few video games that have hit such a raw, and I mean this in a positive way, raw nerve for me than Silent Hill has. Um, I don't say raw nerve in a negative way, but I, I just, I don't know. It comes off the screen and I feel it. And so like even with Silent Hill 1, which I personally am not overly blown away by the story, I love that game for playing it. I love that game for just walking through the town and just feeling it. Um, and again, like the, the, the mist and the decrepitness of the, of the town, which again, when we go throughout the years and we get graphical updates in two and three and well, not four, but, um, just feeling it. And it's the only, it's the only horror game. I'll say it right now. It's the only horror game that's made me feel it. I get creeped out by other games. I get disturbed by some games. I've gotten a little jump there and then, but Silent Hill is the only game that I feel. Yeah, you know, I grew up with Resident Evil, so I came to Silent Hill within the last three to four years. I'd seen the movie before I'd played the games just because that was the way that, you know, I grew up playing Resident Evil. I ran through basically all of the ones that I could of that. And then it was the type of thing where um, I took a break from games and then I came back to games. And when I came back to games, I wasn't really able to have access to them at the time. You know, granted, now I've got uh, Series S so I can get the HD collection, even though, you know, people are probably screaming that's not the way to play two and three, but 
It's the way that I can play it. I played through the original Silent Hill just last summer on my PSP. I had somehow I had had a like a PS3 store download version on my PSP. So I dug that out and played it. And, you know, like you had said, the story of the original Silent Hill doesn't really do a whole lot for me. You know, I, maybe I came to it too late and that's not to be a put down on it. It's just I was kind of like, OK, yeah, I guess this is a fine enough story for me being in this town. But what I think exposes just how well Silent Hill as a a world is crafted and that's withheld, you know, that test of time is that it is incredibly atmospheric, not only in the, you know, fixed and dynamic camera angles that it takes when exploring the town, going through these dip. And, you know, that's something that I want to highlight about the film as well, that really, really understands how to adapt a game for the screen. And, you know, I think that what Silent Hill does really well is, you know, making even an empty street that's filled with fog be ominous mm. in a way that, you know, I never necessarily felt with Spencer Mansion unless there was, you know, a zombie dog jumping through a window or, you know, a crimson head that sits up after I've already cleared a room like five minutes ago. Um, there is also, you know, playing the original Silent Hill, every time an enemy, you know, you hear enemies before you see them because of that radio that starts to do that cracking, crackling static, which for me as an adult playing it for the first time, absolutely terrified me. Um, and just a word on like Silent Hill 2, um, that was a game that I just played this year for the first no time. Shit. Came to it, yeah, man, I came to it way too late. Um, you know, of course, really, really enjoyed it. And while some of the subject matter in that game, I had already experienced in games, maybe not as to that level, mm -hmm. but I was still really, really impressed with, like you said, the ability to tell a story in a game that is at this point 21 years old, I believe. And the fact that it's able to touch raw nerves on certain subject matter that for the time was absolutely taboo. And yet it still holds up in a way that doesn't feel like, oh, let's, you know, tug at this heartstring or tug at this, you know, real world problem or situation that people deal with. It doesn't feel like that. It feels like it is a story, a more complex story than for the time games we're telling. And, you know, even to this day, I don't know that there's met there's many more games that have been able to tackle that subject matter with as much maturity, I'll say. But yeah, I mean, that's my experience with Silent Hill. But I mean, for you, what is like your favorite entry in Silent Hill? And why is it, you know, such a standout from the series itself for you? Oh, oh, well, I wouldn't say since day one. I actually spent a lot of years with three as my favorite because three was actually my introduction. I remember being in EB Games and begging my mom to let me get the game. Um, but then that all changed as soon as I got a hold of two. And two is actually my favorite work of horror media. Um, I love Silent Hill 2 so much. And I, I know you you give the spoilers warning ahead of time. Um, I just, it's a totally, I, I'm going to speak to this from a totally subjective experience, but I really have never experienced anything that makes me so deeply uncomfortable and sad and, um, not like sad, like oh, it ruined my night, but sad in a way that it gets me to think. Um, there is, I, I, and I, I don't, I don't say this light lightly. There is a haunting, hauntingness to Silent Hill too. Um, I was just watching a video essay recently, so it's like I don't want to take all the credit for this. Uh, Might have been Jacob Geller or Super Eye Patch Wolf, but one of them. Um, 
but there is such an uncanny valley. The uncanny valley is Jacob Keller. There, yeah, there's an uncanniness to Silent Hill that just makes its presentation all the creepier. Um, again, you're taught it's, it's a story on one level, emotionally and narratively, that is deeply heartbreaking and deeply tragic. And for me, there's a horror there. That is, well, very, 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 very different from Jane Sunderland. Um, there's a horror there with someone who has struggled with mental illness and depression and anxiety and OCD that I can relate to when it comes to the concepts of being trapped in a hell. Because um, in Silent Hill, I in Silent Hill 2, I really love the concept of Silent Hill, the town, being a psychological force. It's a supernatural force still. But it's a psychological force that is not like a, oh, here's the cults and here's their demons. No, it's a psychological presence. And this man is there as a punishment. And that fucks me up. It absolutely grips me. And in its delivery of that, there is an incredible uncanny valley and also jank to Silent Hill 2 that is really, I think, remarkable. And again, I know a lot of hyperbole, but I, I, I'm, I'm so hyperbolic with it because you can't replicate it without being on purpose. And I think a lot of the moves were not like a, oh, we're going to purposely try to do this. There's just a point that I love. And again, it's not my original idea. This comes from that video with the Jacob Geller. Um, but it's, it's so Lynchian. And I, I'm already a David Lynch fanatic, but... You'll be playing as James and you'll be playing like um, in game. So, you know, just going about doing a thing. And there's there comes a point where you're just moving around. You're doing something. You open a door and it's the hardest cut into, um, I forget what the technical term is, but it's into the cinematic movie. And it's just that there, there's no, it's the hard cut. But there's no bump in the transition. And it, it really throws you off. The, the immersion of realistic, again, we're talking PlayStation 2 here in 2001. But the immersion of that level of realism just hits you like a freight truck. Uh, freight truck. And I was absolutely mesmerized by the dreamlike logic of the game. Um, yeah. And like what I talked about earlier about like atmosphere and feel with Silent Hill... Silent Hill 2 is, in my opinion, the greatest example of that. It is it is walking through a nightmare. Yeah, it's probably the closest that, you know, people throw around terms like fever dream and things like that a lot. But for me, you know, playing Silent Hill 2 and as dated as it is at this point, it still ended up being a, the type of experience that, as you said, so fundamentally resembles a nightmare, right? And, you know, maybe it's um, me projecting a little bit, but like some of the jank that's in that game I attribute to the fact that it's like, oh, this is like purgatory, basically, or this is hell for this person. Um, and so sometimes when there's these little awkward moments, whether it's in the voice delivery or whether it's, you know, just the way in which maybe sometimes the world and James interact with one another or the portrayal of different characters, like it is this perfect nightmare. So, you know, as somebody like yourself, that's such a fan of Silent Hill and, you know, specifically Silent Hill 2, do you remember your reaction to first hearing that they were going to adapt it into a film? So I, as a teenager, was definitely a whole lot less pessimistic than I am now. Um, so it was absolutely no judgments and just thrill. You could have, you know, 
you could have given me anything at that point as an adaptation and I would have ate that shit up. Um, so yeah, with Silent Hill, there was always, there was just an excitement, you know, even in portions of the movie that I'm like, Hey, that doesn't make fucking sense. Um, (laughs) back then I didn't give a shit. You were giving me a Silent Hill movie. And like I mentioned earlier, you were giving me an extension to partake in. So yeah, I, I am devoid of, like, I was devoid of any pessimism. I was devoid of any criticism. As a 32 year old, I've rewatched the movie multiple times. And I can nitpick things a little bit more. But yeah, upon hearing it, Jay, like I was just in it. See, I think I'm the opposite. I used to be very, very uh, pessimistic. And, you know, now with some of the uh, films that I watch, specifically like adaptations, I'm able to be like, well, you know, I'm appreciative of what, and we'll of course be getting into this very shortly, but, you know, I'm more appreciative of the fact that we were able to get a film such as this, that, you know, while some elements of it might not land for me in certain ways, or, you know, maybe defy the logic of the different games that it's drawing influence from. Now, at the end of the day, I'm kind of like, well, this is still the best visual representation of adapting a game to the screen, in my opinion. So, but we will dive into that in a little more context uh, very shortly. But, you know, in getting into the 2006 film Silent Hill, uh, just a bit brief bit of background for people that maybe haven't seen it or just have needed a reminder of, you know, what the era in which the original film was released in. So, you know, this was a film that Christoph was trying to get made for five years. I believe it was uh, all the way dating back to 2001 when he was doing Brotherhood of the Wolf. And he was very interested in trying to adapt this game to film. But, you know, as uh, popular as the franchise was, as big of a name as Silent Hill was back then, you know, Konami was uh, argue, was understandably, you know, a little uh, standoffish in letting somebody adapt their sort of survival horror baby. Um, things only came to a head after all those years, after Christoph had made a video basically breaking down what his vision was for the game uh, coming into a film. And, you know, he had done that by recreating some scenes that he had, you know, experienced in the games and whatnot, uh, played it over music and these things. And finally, Konami said, you can have the rights to make this. Um, He was granted a $50 million budget to make his vision come to life. That had a return of about $100 million. Um, And just to give people an idea of like the groundwork of what video game adaptations looked like in the early 2000s. 2001 saw Tomb Raider, the Angelina Jolie one. 2002 saw, you know, Resident Evil, which was, you know, arguably at the time the biggest uh, survival horror game that had been adapted to film at that point. The following year, we had the second Tomb Raider. That same year, we had House of the Dead, which don't have to say much more about that. The following year, we had another Resi sequel, Resident Evil Apocalypse, and then Doom, Blood Rain, Alone in the Dark, and much more notably than the last two I just mentioned, finally Silent Hill. Um, so I'm curious, you know, all these years later, how do you feel about the direction of adapting Silent Hill 1's plot for the film? There's arguably much more popular entries in the series, even at that point, you know, talking about the fans' love of the franchise. Um, so how do you feel about the decision to go with Silent Hill 1? I think it was ultimately the safest thing they could have done. Um, I mean, we can, we can technically say that you know, three wouldn't have made a lot of sense at all, you know, without playing one. But if you're, to, you know, at that, you know, to the comment you just made, I think it's very fair to say that overwhelmingly more people are into two than one. 
I do not. I am of the. I am of the personal belief that you really cannot adapt Silent Hill too well. Um, so I think Silent Hill One was the safest thing they could go. Now again, going back to child Mike, child teenager Mike loved the fact that he was just getting a Silent Hill thing. I think at that point you could have given me or given me a two, and I would have just been fine with it. But with, so to speak. Okay, let, let, yeah, so to speak, would have been fine with it. But yeah, as time would go, as time has gone on, and especially seeing what they did with Revelations, um, one was the safest thing that they could have done. Um, and in that case, yeah, I, 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 I do have some logic issues with the movie. Pyramid Head, nurses. Um, but otherwise, um, capturing the essence of one really worked out well for them. Yeah, and you know, to be fair to Christoph, originally he was interested in adapting too, um, because he found that to be the more emotionally involving story, right? And when you talk about the emotional turmoil of people and their connection to Silent Hill, that is a perfectly reasonable uh, game to want to lead with adapting. Granted, you know, he felt at the time that, and you know, I would assume still does. The idea that you can't really have a story take place in Silent Hill where the town itself is basically playing second fiddle to the protagonist. Whereas in this film, you know, the core focus is on Silent Hill. And then you have, you know, of course, coincidentally, them ending up in the town and discovering, you know, what the relevance of the town is within their life. Whereas in two, it's much more about James Sunderland and him and what the town is a reflection of based on what he's dealing with. So I guess I don't fault the film for focusing on the original and then changing things a little bit. Um, Just because I guess also I'm less precious, I suppose, on some of those aspects of just the storytelling between one one and two um, and, you know, playing with elements from both and kind of merging it into one film, which, you know, we'll dive into in a little bit. But I guess just, and we've kind of alluded to it, you know, how did you find that he did with capturing the atmosphere in the environment of Silent Hill as a franchise and bringing it to the screen. I easily have to say, um, besides one other point I will eventually make later, I I think that that is the strongest part of this movie. Um, You know, it's wild. I've seen this movie so many times, Jay. But in preparation for our conversation, I rewatched it recently. And something that I didn't have the language for in my previous rewatches and something I didn't have the vocabulary for is that the cinematography cinematography of this film is very spectral. Um, the in, A lot of the inside stuff, like the, a lot of the interiors are creepy and especially some of the interiors towards the end of the movie are very creepy, but you get our character Rose just running through Silent Hill and it's always like something is watching her. Um, the presence of the fog is extremely on point they did that very well i think i was actually more impressed with how they captured the level of rundownness of the of the town with that fog because again you you can you can you can have any beat the shit city or town with fog um but coming from the game it captured the aesthetics that i was very very familiar with um and on top of all of that, I also really want to applaud and acknowledge the film score. Um, the between the synthy elements and the keywork, and then those oh oh perfect industrial moments that I love so much. Um, 
there's such a incredible blend and coming full circle to the environment and atmosphere. There's such a great blend of thrill, uh, suspension, tension, and then melancholy. Oh my god. Even uh, there's a scene very early, right before they go to Silent Hill, and it just kind of, it kind of preps you for the whole movie, even though it's so fucking different visually. And it's the scene um, where Rose and Sharon are they're taking a nap under a tree, and we get that real that we get that mean. I apologize, I can't remember what the piece of music is called, but we get that real key heavy drone piece that is used throughout the film. But and we get it, and we get not an arrow arrow shot, but again we're we're just looking down on them in like a spectral manner, and it's just so sunny. It's one. It's probably the most colorful part of the movie, but it sets you up for the whole vibe you're gonna get, and I love it. I freaking love it. Yeah, man. I think that you really can't give this film enough credit in just nailing the look of Silent Hill. And uh, you know, <laughs> jumping ahead briefly a minute, uh, I watched an interview recently about um, you know the approach that they're taking for the sequel that they're going to be mm-hmm. making. That Christoph Gaines is coming back to make. Return to Silent Hill, right? Which we'll talk about at the end of the episode. But, you know, they in this marketing speak, they were saying, like, he's a real gamer. He's a real Silent Hill fan. He understands. Which, when I'm hearing that from Konami, I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I get you're doing this song and dance. Sorry, the, you don't upset the gamers. You've got a real gamer making the real gamer movie. But, you know, in going back to the original film, this film is so indicative of someone that, you know, I don't care how much of the game that they've played, mm-hmm. they clearly played enough to understand what makes this series so visually distinctive. And the fact that we're able to get these massive exteriors and the intimacy of the interior shots that dabble in both aspects of Silent Hill in a way that, again, somebody that's not familiar with the games is not going to be able to do. And I'm not saying that as like, oh, we got a real gamer making this, but it's someone that's familiar with the source material, but more importantly, understands Silent Hill as a singular survival horror experience, right? They understand what makes this so much different than a Resident Mm. Evil or so much different from like a clock tower or something along those lines. And it's the type of thing where visually speaking, it, I couldn't imagine this being better than it looks. And that's not just saying like, Oh, they nailed the fog or they nailed the ash or they nailed the monsters, but the way in which they're able to, incorporate, you know, there's several moments that are taken from the game, right? There's a couple of scenes that replicate those fixed camera dynamic angles from the original Silent Hill. I'm thinking about initially when Rose is chasing after Sharon as soon as she wakes up after the accident and you get that shot from the garage of her that it looks like it's from the perspective of a box that's been buried in the corner of a garage for 30 Mm. years because it's so far back. It shows you the entire scope of the garage and her And then also when she makes that descent down that dark alleyway into what is her first real taste of Silent Hill. And as you said, you described it as being like very spectral. Mm -hmm. And you have that camera that basically feels like an apparition that's gliding along the, you know, the the area uh, or the perimeter rather of that alleyway and giving us this top down look that's very slow, very subtle, but it's shifting in a way that is not human. Um, And I think that, again, those are moments that somebody that's not familiar with the source material just couldn't pull off. But also, you know, we talked earlier in the intro about, you know, Easter eggs or nods to the games. Both of those examples I just gave, 
in no way ruin the flow of those moments. No. In no way do they feel like, oh, well, hey, wink, wink, nod, nod. This is from the game, right? It's something that you can't, like, you're not going to feel alienated from that if you haven't played the first no. game. At the same time, though, you can appreciate how unsettling and how, you know, how voyeuristic those moments feel. And I just find that to be the best compliment I could give to somebody that's adapting a game. Also, to your point, you mentioned the soundtrack, right? The soundtrack, which, you know, there was a Canadian, uh, there was some type of licensing deal where they had to have a Canadian composer involved. But to my understanding, he largely was remixing Akira Yokomoto, Yokomoto's, um, I apologize for butchering that, um, uh, his score from the original game. A good deal of that score is in the film. And, you know, largely that is the soundtrack that's playing throughout the film. And that is so major to the atmosphere of this film in a way that, you know, I can barely describe to my buddies that I made watch this this week with me when I was revisiting it because they were kind of like, oh, this is kind of like a noticeable soundtrack. But to me, every time that score kicks in, it reminds me of a moment from playing the games. And again, it's not alienating the audience. If anything, it's giving me a fan of the series, you know, that joy and that terror of being a Silent Hill fan. But it doesn't feel as if it is being referential for the sake of being referential. It's doing it to aid the atmosphere and to aid the craft of bringing Silent Hill to life in the best way possible. You know, I think we left this out in the beginning and I'm not trying to conclude all my thoughts on Silent Hill, the movie here. Um, But a very important thing to adaptation in general is also honor and respect of the source material. And to all the points you just made about the score, that score, that original score is being respected and honored. And that's something I absolutely applaud the film for. The score is one of those things that, you know, I have uh, only really in the last, I'll say, five or six years appreciated uh, film scores, right? That's something that, um, I guess, unless there was like a pivotal scene in a film that had some type of crazy orchestral score or something, I wasn't really, you know, tuned in to movie scores as much as I should have been. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, in the recent years where I have had more of appreciation and have sought them out and have listened to them outside the context of viewing a film in my spare time when I'm writing or editing or whatever, and then returning to a film, if anything, it gives me such a better appreciation for how much legwork film scores, you know, do for crafting that atmosphere. Um, And something like this, like Silent Hill, that is so dreamlike, this score, I mean, it, it does so much, you know, we can talk about the fog all we want, but if that score is not kicking in right at the right moment, like it's severely underplaying those scenes in the sense that it's like, well, okay, you can look the part, but you have to have the essence of what that would be like. The fact that you have this sort of dreamlike score that's playing in the background that only kicks up at the right moments. And, you know, talk about pairing uh, audio with visuals and every single time that score kicks in it doesn't feel like it's just done to be like hey we got the rights to the silent hill music we're gonna fucking use it as much as we want it's always in service of the exact moment it's yes. needed uh-huh. yeah absolutely no it, it's it's moving it's mo- well i don't want to say moving but it's hitting the right emotion each time with what's happening again a moment of suspension a moment of sadness it's always on point but um in terms of monsters right let's get into the monsters we'll get to our uh to our human com- counterparts soon enough but i really want to talk about that because i think that silent hill again one of the things that's made that series such a standout for me has been the creature design and how you know it might not apply to the movie as much but in the games 
the creatures themselves have a significance to the characters in the game. And seeing how that evolves over the course of the series is something that makes those creature designs not only special, but very personable in a way that I appreciate in good creature and monster design. Um, for you though, like what is the standout right away? And then we can kind of go in after that and dive into some of the other ones. Oh, okay. Shit. Okay. So the standout right away, um, babies, whatever they're, whatever yeah. they're called, babies, kids. Yeah. yeah. Um, God damn, dude. Breathe <laughs> me the fuck out the first time. That one, that shot of, of, you know, Rose sees the guy, he's still alive, and he's like all hung up on the chain fence. And then we get the slow pan down, and it's, and you know what's fucked up? It's the thing is walking at her straightforwardly, but its neck is turned around. So we don't see the face. We see the front of a body like we normally would, but then the neck is elongated and turned. And then we get that next uh, two cuts, I think. Because, yeah, go to Rose. I'm, I'm rambling here. Go to Rose. Go to Baby. Uh, and then the thing just turns. And it, as it's turning, it's erupting. But it's also like it has this lava look to it. So its face is lighting up. I, yeah, in revisiting this movie... Um, there were really only two monsters that, well, there were three monsters that really got to me. Um, but when I say got to me, they got to me because they were impressive in their persona and what they were projecting. But the the baby kid things are the still creepiest thing of that whole movie to me. What is the one that stands out to you? Uh, for me, I think it's going to be the, um, and I got to remember the name of it. It is um, the tortured janitor. That's my second. Right? That's and, my second. And yeah, and I have to give a shout out to Roberto Campanella, who is the dancer and choreographer for all the monsters, in addition to him playing not only the tortured janitor, but he also plays Pyramid Head, and he plays the janitor in the flashback that, and you know, we learn about the tortured janitor um, and the significance of that. Talk. That's probably the only instance in this film where there's a creature that is tied directly to a character. Yes. And, and if anything, it makes that creature which is, you know, disturbing and fucked up and I'll get into it, but it provides an additional significance to why, like it justifies why it looks yeah. like that in a way that it really does make it monstrous in a whole new way, right? Uh -huh. And, you know, for people that uh, either aren't familiar or don't remember, like there's this scene where Rose is investigating um, the school and she comes to this guy in the real world that is tangled in barbed wire and he's got his mouth open and it's horrific and then later, once they get into, you know, the Silent Hill world, it, it has this barbed wire that's basically tying the back of its legs to its forehead and going right into its eyes. Um, and it's like crawling on the floor and it's got its tongue going and like this disgusting licking motion. And it's such a fucked up amalgamation of meat and barbed wire that is just visually disgusting. But more importantly, you know, when you learn the significance between that character and um, and Alessa, right, and you find out that, you know, this young child was molested by this janitor, uh, that adds a whole new level of monstrosity to that creature, right? That creature now has a real world component to it that is more disturbing than anything that could be in the Silent Hill world. Uh, and, you know, from a monster standpoint and from a horror standpoint in general, not saying that, you know, the characters relationship to that creature 
is like the go-to for depicting, you know, horrors and horror, but, you know, just having a real world element such as that, which is, you know, something that unfortunately is a part of our world and is an atrocity that's happened to, you know, who knows how many people, it is the type of thing that it makes Silent Hill a little more real for me in a way that's so disturbing, you know, for as gross as the, the burnt children corpses are as gross as pyramid head mm. looks, um, you know, having a real world connotation to that monster makes it that much more terrifying to me. You know, it's kind of, um, you know, when you think about silent, this movie has Easter eggs in it that don't make any sense, you know, given the games, which we'll eventually get to, but you know, that janitor, is the most for someone who wanted to make Silent Hill 2 as the movie, that is the most Silent Hill 2 thing. You know, the whole monster representing character or monster representing a trauma. Because it's the it's the only instance of it in the whole movie. Yeah. And I I have the janitor as my number two pick for absolutely most disturbing. Um yeah, absolutely grosses me out. Let's talk about um the designs in general um i think across the board and on the very low end of this i have the demon bugs which i just know as like yeah they have creepy faces what's <laughs> whatever um are those even in the game by the way i didn't remember if those were part I, of the game or i'm not. going to say no but i could also be forgetting i could okay. be forgetting so i apologize to anyone who hears this and like he's fucking wrong um, no. <laughs> um, I don't know either, man. Hey, we're in the same boat, so I don't know either. But I genuinely, across the board, think every design in this movie is fantastic. Uh, absolutely brilliantly fantastic and done. Um, you know, it's funny now you, you mentioned, um, and I apologize, what's his face is the one who's done the choreography and helped out with all the monster stuff. It's been like a decade since I've watched the behind the scenes, and I do remember the monster feature. And it's like, um, I remember them showing one of the, the one that really stood out to me the most, and I have it written here. I can't remember what its formal name is, but the spitter, that costume is so fucking interesting to me. Um, the one that has the no arms and it's wiggling and then it shoots the black stuff out of its chest. Yeah, that thing. Um, absolutely amazing. Just uh, costume work. Yeah, man. I think that, you know, while there might be some reservations in terms of, you know, the inclusion of Pyramid Head and the nurses. Yeah. If you're going to include creatures like that, that, you know, are Silent Hill 2 and they're tied to a specific character and the fact that they're included in this technically doesn't really make sense. At the same time, though, if you're going to include those elements into what is essentially adapting the original Silent Hill into a film, if you're going to include them, you better fucking make them nail the look of those creatures yes. to the fucking T, right? And I think that the way in which they are portrayed on screen their designs, and more importantly, you know, the way that they behave and act mm. could not be more perfect, in my opinion. Um, I think even, you know, as little as Pyramid Head is in it, at the same time, though, you know, he looks the role. And I think that he, they even had him wear, like, uh, platform shoes. So he was, like, seven feet tall or something. And the mask that looks, you know, pristine, I think, has it so that way he could only see like directly his below him, like his feet. He couldn't uh -huh. see anything. He basically had blinders on like a racehorse or something. And, you know, those types of details, you know, while they might seem insignificant, it plays a role in the way in which he carries that character and the way that, you know, he lets that sword drag behind him. So you hear him oh before God. you see him. And then, you know, how, uh, 
almost like laborious his movements are, right? It's very slow. It's very kind of just like, I don't really, I can't really see my environment, but you know, this is me kind of just like being the bull in the China shop, if you will, uh, in a way that I just find to be very reminiscent of the games, at least. I was just going to say, you're uh, 100% right that they captured the feel. I know I've been repeating that a lot, but they really captured the feel of both Pyramid Head and the nurses. So it's like, on one hand, while I don't think um, that, in me, me personally speaking here, Pyramid Head has too much of a great presence in the movie. There is one scene where I think they really let him shine. Um I do think that the nurses are really, again, me uh, subjectively speaking, the nurses are effectively creepy. Um, that that hallway scene is one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie, where Sharon has to navigate with the light. It's that's incredibly gamey, and I love it. They capture yeah. that gaminess in the movie so well. If you're going to make a Silent Hill film, especially in 2006, right? This is the first time Silent Hill has been adapted looking at the competition at that point, this might be the only chance to adapt Silent Hill, right? He was making this movie hoping that he would probably be able to adapt Silent Hill 2. Mm. At the same time, never know, really has a clear plan. And, you know, considering we might get that Silent Hill 2 adaptation either in 2023 or 2024, right? We don't really have a sense of when that film is actually going to come out. I would say probably two years at the earliest. So, you know, thinking about that span of time, if you're going to make a Silent Hill film, are you really not going to have the monster that is, you know, iconic within Silent Hill, whether or not, you know, the use of it has been slightly bastardized and showing up and everything despite the significance? Like, no, you're going to fucking put that in your movie. You're going to have somebody rip the skin off. You're oh. going to have Pyramid Head rip the skin off of somebody and throw the skin at people. Like, it's so deranged and fucked up, but it's indicative of somebody that is like, they're really going to go for it. They're going to give this their all. And whether or not it is going to upset gamers or not, like, who gives a fuck at that point? Go for it. Have your moment, even if it's not going to be, you know, littered throughout the movie. And I think I have to give him credit for the fact that it's not overused. And the fact that he touches upon iterations or straight up creatures from a variety of games, because, you know, you're like me, you love a good monster. Mm -hmm. And I want to see those things if I'm going to go be seeing an adaptation and, you know, a take it back to the nurses for a sec. They're in less of the movie than Pyramid Head. And yet that scene in which, you know, Rose has to navigate between them while, you know, the light basically uh, makes them move around. Mm -hmm. So her trying to sneak between them, and then just making a little noise, and then one of them hears her and starts swinging that scalpel wildly, starts slicing throats of the other nurses around her. Like, that's an incredibly grotesque, also like, you know, sensual, because we know with the nurses how they're dressed in Silent yes. Hill, but also not only just, you know, the way that they're dressed, but the way in which they're moving, right? Because they're played by ballerinas. And so ballerinas have this very sensual type dance, uh, you know, routines and whatnot. And so, that scene is a really great combination of just pure terror, the claustrophobia of trying not to bump into any of them, but also the dance-like nature that they have when the light shines on them briefly. Um, and I think that that's just a moment that, you know, again, while it lacks the significance that the game has when it introduces the nurses, it's a pretty accurate, I think, representation of if you're in a Silent Hill video game, how they would behave, I suppose. No, to you know what? To his credit, I this I, I really believe it when he's just like, I've played these games and I like them and they mean a lot to me. I buy it. 
I do buy it after watching this movie. Yeah, because I, I, yeah, if I put my judgments aside, the representations of Pyramid Head and the nurses are is absolutely spot on. I'll also respect Pyramid Head on anything as long as it's not a skateboard. But, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think, um, I think we've praised the monsters quite a bit, Jay. You want to talk about the less monstrous or maybe equally as monstrous things in the movie? Look at that. Um, let's talk about the actual people. Um, I want to put it out here that out there that one of the things I am on the fence about with this movie, though I do spoiler alert, lean more positive to it, is that it is not hesitant to lean into melodrama, dramatic acting. Yeah. Um, when we, I mean, the little girl, uh, Sharon, Sharon leans into it with the whining, uh, Sean Bean is being Sean Bean. And then um, our lead actress there, I apologize, I forget her name. Um, but she, actually, she's pretty tamed. I would say she's pretty tamed. Radha Mitchell. Thank you, Radha Mitchell. And then, um, oh my God, I do want Alice Krieg. Um, she's allowed mm. to be melodramatic because she's amazing. <laughs> um, but no, I, I really... But also, was Silent Hill is melodramatic. Would you agree, Jay? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm not as versed in the later entries in the Silent Hill franchise, but at the same time, you know, thinking about, you know, survival horror games of that era, especially coming off of, you know, Resident Evil, um, uh, I've always associated, you know, survival horror to a certain extent with B-movie or B-movie elements, mm -hmm. if you will. I don't find Silent Hill to be nearly as leaning into B-movies as maybe early Resi is, but at the same time, you know, I'm going to excuse a lot of the over melodramatic sort of nature of these characters in this film. I think that it's something that maybe bothered me a lot more when I first saw this when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's the type of thing where, you know, the story as a whole is not what I find to be the strength of this film. So I've kind of maybe in my, you know, in turning 30, I've kind of just rolled with the punches of, yeah, this is going to have this narrative these are these characters and I'm just going to roll with it because the visuals are so engaging to me that what they're saying, I, I don't pay much attention to it to begin with. Like the lore that ties all of these elements together and whatnot is not what is interesting sure. to me. I think that again, the visual flair of everything is very interesting. Um, that being said though, you know, I think that Raha Mitchell is fine. Basically, sure. you know, she plays this distraught mother has these kind of melodramatic moments, which, you know, they are what they are. A lot of this also is like, feels like it has residual effects of like the early aughts kind of horror movie sensibilities. So maybe it was a little bit about like, let's look at what other movies are coming out around this time. Uh -huh. Let's kind of channel maybe a little bit of that energy maybe. Because, yeah. you know, it might also be just them viewing like gamers as being these people that's like, well, what do gamers really want out of characters and story? Not that much, like just in terms of the mainstream, maybe sure. perception or studio head perception of who would be there to watch this movie. Uh, but I think I agree with you in terms of like Alex Krieg. Mm. She's perfectly over the top fire and brimstone in such a great way that really does, you know, fuel that second half of the film in a big way. Um, but I think also like Lori Holden who plays Sybil the cop. Good I think job. she's pretty great as a standout. You know, she does a great job of being this kind of no bullshit you know, hard as nails cop that's not will that's not afraid to like get her hands dirty and slug it out with those, you know, uh, cultists and yeah. whatnot, which I think plays well. Um, you know, Sh Sharon, I suppose is fine. <laughs> it's, a, it's a child actor. A kid, she know. does a lot of screaming. Uh, I don't have much notes for her other than, and you'll be, as a Bioshock fan, you'll be interested in this. 
Uh, she voiced the little sister, some of the little sisters in Bioshock oh. 2, actually, and in Minerva's Den. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? Okay, never mind. You know, she might have been the second part of that whole movie. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I did not know that, Jay. Goddamn. But, yeah, she was she was perfectly fine, I thought. Um, I will save my judgment of, uh, of two male characters for when we get to a later portion of the show. But I actually want to interject because I kind of feel a little ignorant for something. So um hold up let me not screw up her name so sharon was jodel friendland i apologize if i butchered that if you ever hear this um so as sharon uh sure whatever child actor that's fine whatever however her as alessa i thought was incredibly unnerving at times and very good i've, I've only ever been creeped out by three children in my life um <laughs> alessa being one um the dead son from pet cemetery gage gage thank you and then um what's her face from the first orphan movie who's not really a child but yes um yeah alessa is easily and um there's it's it's not a monologue but she is spending most of the time doing the talking towards the end when um rose finally comes face to face with alessa's dark side and that's what i mean by alessa um that portrayal is super creepy. Oh my God, I love it. So yeah, I do want to shout out and be fair to that. You know, that part of her performance was very well done. Absolutely. Um, I guess also you just mentioned that end portion of the film and that was a moment that originally I was not a fan of that final confrontation in the film. Huh. On this rewatch, I think I had a better appreciation for it. How did you feel about sort of that concluding moment where, you know, you have the realization of what the town did and then you quite literally have like their first victim kind of rise up from the belly of silent hill and you know they have this barbed wire uh this kind of like possessed barbed wire that basically eviscerates all of the town people at the very end of the movie okay wow um so in all of that you've spoken to one of my most favorite parts of the movie and then also one of my biggest the one big complaint I so I, I will just, just answering you. Um, I ultimately love it. I ultimately love it. Um, the conversation between Alessa's dark side and Rose is, I'm alluding to something here, but it's one of the few exposition dumps I did not mind. Um, and that's also because that flashback in particular is very upsetting. And I do think it plays into the horror of it. Um, you know, it shows you this little girl being burned alive and her mother's horrific guilt over it and the cruelty of these religious zealots. And I thought it was just effective visual horror. Um, but as as far as the barbed wire scene, that, so this is 2005. So yeah, I would have been about 14 or 15. My new metal horror loving ass ate up that scene so much i thought it was like the most like fucking like short of like finishing moves you could do in mortal Kombat. i thought it was the most brutal thing i had ever seen in my life oh my god i just um and it also like i'm a spawn fan and it reminds me a lot of like spawns chains i i absolutely ate it up i thought it was just like and that's again it's so funny we've been, we talked about it, the score earlier and now we're really layering in these organ keys. And I mean, 
to be honest with you, it, it's such a conflicting duality of like thrill and scare and scary because you're see, like it, it. You are there's a part of your brain where it's like you see this like demon exacting its revenge or this little girl exacting her revenge for the horrors that have been done to her, and you have these real authentic screams and like cries, and it's it. it yeah, it, it's it's a conflicting duality because you are excited because it's a, it's a lot of action and then you are really horrified and disturbed. And so that whole ending did it for me. That's probably my top memorable moment of the film. As far as everything that plays out afterwards, I am just like, fuck it, whatever. We did the cool part. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think that I bring up that scene mostly just to say that I did not find the CGI in this to be as egregiously bad as I remembered it to be. Uh, you know, there's, I would say that the three moments that stand out of being very CGI have actually four uh, is this moment. You have the little Ash children, you have the spitter. And then, you know, very early on in the intro, you have Sean Bean running across the highway and dodging a very CGI like garbage truck or something, which <laughs> looks is probably the worst, the worst use of CGI in the whole movie. But I will say in terms of the monsters and the barbed wire, I didn't find it to be nearly as bad as a lot of those early, you know, aughts films that utilized a lot of CGI because of, again, these, this film itself has pretty smart design, I think, of the creatures and whatnot. And it uses just enough CGI, but at the same time, you know, it's more about the monsters having the color palette that really does mesh with the world itself yes. in a way that I find it almost hides some of the maybe uglier parts of the CGI. Um, but overall, you know, I was such a fan of the fact that it basically feels like Kristoff is basically making his tree scene or his homage to the tree scene from Evil Dead in a big way, right? When you have the barbed wire that yeah. grabs uh, uh, Alice Krieg's character and basically like grabs her, spreads her limbs apart, and then, you know, you can use your imagination of where the rest of the barbed wire goes uh, before ripping her in half. And it makes for something that is, you know, not only disturbing, but then, you know, thinking about all the awful she's done, it's kind of comical where she gets ripped in half at the very end of it. Um, but I found that it was a really great sort of spectacle moment at for the end of the film, because, you know, you've had these small, creepy interactions that have been building and building and building with the monsters and whatnot. And then to have this kind of just crescendo of depravity, if you will, with the barbed wire and just how many people you see get eviscerated. I think Originally, the plan was you were supposed to have several pyramid heads that would appear within the church and then slaughter people. Because of budget constraints, they couldn't do that. But I think that having that, you know, the barbed wire and the significance of that um, does a good job, at least, of just making this larger-than-life finale that, you know, at the end of the day, I don't find undercuts the true finale of the film, which it kind of leans more into the psychological side of Silent Hill and the nature of the town and the nature of the relationship between the characters and the town itself. Um, so yeah, I'm more keen on this film, I think, than I have ever been uh, after this most recent rewatch and having a little more perspective of, you know, what bad CGI is. And especially, you know, even in the modern age, I don't know about you, I have seen a lot of like mid-tier to low-budget horror films that are modern that are have just a litany of egregious uh, examples of CGI. Oh, in them. yeah. I, I, I turn into a total snob when it when it comes down to it. Like, I'll, I'll rip apart a Marvel movie over bullshit CGI, you know, and, and horror movies. Um, 
But I do want to, I, I do want to, you know, before we hit the end point of this, I want to ask, because I think it's only fair that we do this if we're being critical of these works. Um, is there anything that didn't stand for you still, or there's anything that was, you found negative for lack of a better term? Yeah. So the element of this film uh, that still does not work, and I find it to be the result of why the movie runs too long, in my opinion, it's also why some parts of it just feel bloated um, at times in terms of the narrative. And that's every single scene that has Sean Beam in it. Bro. Sean Beam. I fucking wrote <laughs> the literal same sentence. Holy <laughs> shit. Everyone. Thank God. Same we're, sentence. We're... <laughs> Dude, it is the element of the film that feels like it was done after, you know, principal shooting was done. It feels mm -hmm. like it was added. And you know, in my research, and I couldn't corroborate it, it was a, a note that I had found on IMDb, which I couldn't find any interviews that corroborated it. Maybe other people could. But apparently, Christoph decided that he was going to make this a film that only had female characters in it. Huh. And one of the notes he got from the studio was that there's no men in it. So if you want to make this appealing, you have to put men in the movie. Uh. And so they included Sean Bean's character in The Detective, who has the most ridiculous name of any detective ever for a last name, which is Gucci, uh, which is absolutely ridiculous. Who's played by one of the cast members of uh, Sons of Anarchy. It's literally the only thing I've seen him in. Yeah. And I think his name is Kim Coates or something along those lines. But anyways, every I have no issue with Sean Bean. I have no issue with that other actor. Every single interaction feels like such a colossal fucking waste of time. Mm -hmm. It feels like an exposition dump. Mm -hmm. It's not handled with any real tact or nuance, I suppose. Not to say that when they're in Silent Hill, the narrative has a lot of nuance to it. But it just every time you leave the town, it kind of eviscerates the idea that it is this dream other world because you're allowed to return to the real world mm -hmm. for these small periods of time. That at the end of the day, there's no reason why you have to have an interaction with Sean Bean going to that orphanage and digging through those waterlogged records when you could just have Rose stumble upon a diary in Silent Hill or something like that. More Every time that we leave Silent Hill, it drives me insane. And those scenes are not long enough to really almost justify their inclusion. I just find them to be distracting. I find them to you know bog down a film which should have been a brisk 145 or maybe even 155. And, you know, those extra 10 or 15 minutes are noticeable, I find still, you know, doesn't ruin the experience by any means for me, but it is noticeably a detractor for me still. You know, distraction is the one word I did not write down, but you're 100% right. I have nothing to add. Um, I would, I would, I was literally going to say the same shit. Um, but distraction, yeah. Because like even I, I, let me I'll add one thing to that, but it's like you know I I told you that I like that ending conversation between uh, Rose and Alessa, and a moment that we get in that flashback uh, that's already a pretty effective flashback, but like we get that moment where the detective touches the chains and we see that he burns his hands, and you as the audience are supposed to be like oh shit they showed me earlier his hands are scarred. <laughs> that's why and it's like okay bro like no fucking shit cool um so yeah it makes that scene from earlier just feel i don't know it just feels unnecessarily tacked on so yeah i think distraction is a great word um what i really leaned into is that it's the only part of the movie where i feel like we get these obnoxious exposition dumps 
Yeah. And I think that also, you know, if we had remained in Silent Hill and gotten those dumps, yeah, it would have still would have probably been, have been, that would have been understandable to me. Yeah, absolutely. It would have been more understandable because you're within this fantasy realm and you need to have more understanding of it. Not necessarily saying they would have handled the exposition dump any better, mm-hmm. but contextually, it doesn't take me out of the world of Silent Hill. Whereas every time we return to the real world, like what are a majority of those interactions? It's him stopping at the the uh, the car shop yeah. and he's like, have you seen this woman or this girl? Like that doesn't add anything. And that scene goes on for longer than it should. Nothing is really gained from that. Um, and yeah, I mean, overall, it's ironic that the one horror movie that I know of that Sean Bean is in, he doesn't die, uh, which is hilarious to me, given, you know, the the joke that is his character's fate in the majority of the movies he's watched, he's in. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I It doesn't, you know, ruin the experience for me, but it is noticeably something that feels like it was included after, you know, a studio head or an exec gave notes back and said, hey, you need to add an element. Whether or not I can corroborate um, what I had read, that remains to be seen, but at the very least, that that tracks with the inclusion of those interactions. And sure. when you look at the rest of the movie, you know, all of the primary figures in it are female, right? Yeah, there's going to be cultists that are men and whatnot, <laughs> which, you know, not to say that there shouldn't be, but it is the type of thing that it is such a female-oriented story in terms of motherhood, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's, all I guess... All characters... Women. Yeah, all all the side characters are mothers to a certain extent that have dealt with their own, you know, trials and tribulations that if you had Sean Bean play a more central role, you know, not to say there wouldn't be a place for it, but it just, I don't know, it would feel at odds with the way in which the story seems to be constructed from the very beginning. I agree. Um, and that's not to say, again, like you couldn't have a version of Silent Hill that had, you know, we're going to get returned to Silent Hills. James Sunderland is going to be in that, obviously. Exactly. But for this story that's being told, it just feels like it coincides better with the theme of motherhood um, in a way that I don't think it would play as well if Rose was swapped out with Chris. I just don't feel that that would have played as well, but that's my uh, my take on it. So yeah, that kind of brings us to the end of our chat on Silent Hill. But in conclusion, uh, Michael, I guess do we feel that, and you know, we've kind of already answered this, but I will, uh, I will ask the question anyways, you know, do we feel that Silent Hill pays proper tribute or acknowledges the source material to an appropriate degree to say that this is a successful adaptation of what is one of the most beloved horror video game franchises out there? Ultimately, Jay, yes, it does. Yes. Um, you know, we can nitpick as much as we want about the nurses and we can nitpick about Pyramid Head. And yes, Silent Hill, the movie, deviates also from several points of Silent Hill 1, while also embracing numerous and important plot points of Silent Hill 1. But as we both agreed upon earlier in the episode, this movie captures feel. It captures, it, it, it has an honor, what I, for lack of a better term, it has an honorable narrative that deviates enough to, you know, make adjustments where it needs to, but also captures a lot of what we may remember or what us gamers may know from Silent Hill 1. <clears throat> it um, And then there's the whole presentation of this film feels like I am in the video game. Like, when I, when I get that essence of being Harry running around Silent Hill 1, I feel that watching Rose run around Silent Hill. 
I think the feel of this movie is absolutely perfect. Um, the way the monsters act. And I think very much because of that feel and because I have bought into the environment so much, I also buy into that of the cult's role. I also buy into that of the cult's actions. Now, when I say buy, I'm not saying I agree. I'm saying I, I am immersed in the world. It is an immersive Silent Hill experience. I won't argue that it's it's more immersive than the games. Two and three will always be unique experiences of art to me that cannot be touched. But this movie gets extremely close to that. And I think as far as a film adaptation, that mind you also at the end of the day, you know, it's a work of art, but it's also a work of art that needs to make money. And the changes made also have to appeal to a mainstream audience. And that's that's where we get this struggle with adaptation, especially games. You know, we need to appeal to the gamers, but we also need to appeal to people who may not be aware of this property and are going to come in. And ultimately, the best thing that an adaptation, one of the, well, not ultimately, but one of the best things an adaptation can do is strike that middle ground. And yes, to me, Silent Hill 2006 does it. I have nothing to add to that because that was perfectly said. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not, Again, I have not experienced the entirety of the Silent Hill franchise yet. It's um, something that I'm looking forward to doing over the Christmas break is diving into Silent Hill 3. If there's time, I'll dive into Silent Hill 4, The Room. But at the same time, you know, having played both 1 and 2, and I think I even played Origins back in the day during my PSP days, um, it's the type of thing I'm not especially precious about the story, how accurate it is, right? I'm not terribly interested in that. Even if, you know, when I watch some of the Resident Evil films, I don't really care if they conflate a great deal of it. Uh, the different story elements into one film, I want to see a film that captures that texture, that world building, that atmosphere. For me, this film is at the top of my adaptation list uh, for those reasons, because it's so successful in that. Um, and, you know, even it's utilizing the score from the original games. It's not just that the score is there, right? It's more so that it's used appropriately throughout the film yes. in a way that heightens that narrative and really does, you know, it's indicative of people that understand, you know, the proper implementation of a score and, you know, that score speaks for itself. That's helpful, but also the fact that it's used when it's used um, in a way that just makes it feel through and through like Silent Hill. And, you know, to a certain extent, you could say this about so many elements of Silent Hill, but Silent Hill is nothing without that score. And it's something that the film capitalizes on in the, uh, the most appropriate and the best ways possible, I find. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Recently, it was announced that Christoph Gans was going to return to Silent Hill with the return of Silent Hill, uh, which is him adapting finally Silent Hill 2, which is something that he's wanted to do ever since he conceptualized adapting this franchise all the way back in 2001. Uh, how do we feel about this, Michael? Other than, you know, so elated we're going to jump out of our skin. Yeah, other than that. Um, oh, God, I am conflicted, Jay. Sorry, I have, my, yeah. I have my mouth muffled because of just overthinking this. Uh, <laughs> Jumped out of our skin for either better or worse. I really, listen, listen, just so no keyboard warrior says this later in case, I'm going to see it. I'm going to. Um, <laughs> how do I feel about it? I'm honestly not leaning too favorable. Um, and I think that, and I think that comes down to part of what we said earlier. Um, and just, and just to condense it so I'm not rambling, Silent Hill 2 is a product of its time. I also think there are movies that have really 
already captured the perfect essence of Silent Hill 2. Like, if you want to see Silent Hill, Silent Hill 2, the movie, go watch Jacob's Ladder, the original, the original, not the remake. Um, um, that film's birthday is on the day that we are recording. No shit. That's wild. <laughs> 32 years old. Damn. Okay. Well, that's funny. I did not know that. Uh, that's awesome. It's one of my favorites. But um, anyway, yeah, it's when we talk about the Lynchian dream logic of Silent Hill 2, and not to be too pretentious, I I don't know if that's something you can replicate. It may just have to happen. And I'm not trying to be an elitist about it. I think it's, I think, here's, here's the thing, Jay. I do think, and this might sound weird to say, but I think it's a very relatively difficult thing to capture it. I think it's relatively easier to capture the essence and get a hold of what makes Silent Hill 1 work. I think it's going to be much more relatively difficult to sell a convincing Silent Hill 2 film. Now. I think that his adapting Silent Hill 2 largely is going to be a fool's errand, uh, unfortunately, because no matter what he delivers, and you know, I'm sure just how volatile the, <laughs> the internet discussion is on games and movies at this point, mm. It doesn't matter what he delivers. People are not going to be happy. It's going to be, you know, the minority that has the loudest voice when this comes out in terms of like hardcore Silent Hill fans or Silent Hill 2 fans being the minority that are just like, this is the worst adaptation I've ever seen. Right. That is going to be unavoidable. So largely, I would classify it as a fool's errand. However, I will caveat it with saying if there was one person, we're going to get an adaptation of Silent Hill 2 for film, whether we anybody wants it or not. I will say it could not be in better hands, visually speaking, than in him returning and him, you know, not only having continued his career, obviously, since the original Silent Hill film, but also just, again, someone that has an understanding of what visually makes Silent Hill work. Mm -hmm. From that aspect, I feel comfortable with him doing it. That being said adapting that the complexities of that narrative i think is something that is going to be incredibly difficult to do um and i wouldn't want any i wouldn't want to undertake that right i think that if the casting isn't perfect if the handling of the taboo subject matter is not done tactfully that could be a complication but at the end of the day if we get a film that strikes the visual tone of silent hill Silent Hill 2, you sort of have those moments that they're going to recreate from the game. I would be happy with that at the very least. Now, if he's able to capitalize on the storytelling aspect, which not to say like, is it going to be similar or better, but just handle it in a way that doesn't feel like it detracts from the the, pacing of that film in the same way that, you know, the original movie definitely was bloated. That could be extremely problematic if you deliver a bloated film trying to deal with various types of taboo subject matter. That could be a recipe. I don't want to say disaster, but that could be a uh, a recipe for for potential narrative failures there. So from that regard, I think that that has some cause for concern. At the same time, though, I'm not viewing it as this like doomed project just because this is someone that knows the the textural language, if you will of Silent Hill in a way that at least I'm not dreading seeing the first trailer for this, though. I will not be watching any trailers and I'll be diving right into this when it comes out, whenever that is. It's just, you know, the point you made, like, 
I have I will I will go in with the immediate assumption that because of what he did with this Silent Hill 2006, Silent Hill Return will the return, I apologize, whatever, will look amazing. But I really think Silent Hill 2, like I, the stories of two and three are important. And this is a thing that he can't fuck up. And so, yeah, I, I have a lot of concern because also a big part of Silent Hill 2's story is also its presentation. Um, I don't, Again, I'm going to see it. I'm not going to be full of shit and be like, I'm never going to see it. I'm going to see it. Um, My hopes are just low. My expectations are low. You know, that's the best way to go into anything these days, I feel. <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe that's me being just cynical, but I go into, I don't, I try not to watch trailers as much as I can. Yeah, I go in with low expectations, man, and I just, I hope for the best. Um, and that, that's something that I think serves me uh, uh, pretty well within the last few years, you know? I'm just happy to be getting another Silent Hill adaptation from someone that through and through, for the most part, seems to understand what makes that series so visually distinctive. And for that, I'm very thankful considering uh, maybe some of the other adaptations that we've seen. But do you have any uh, final closing thoughts on Silent Hill and potentially the return before I uh, wrap us up? I will say that like, you know, I've seen a lot of mostly negative criticism lobbed at this film. And I want to be that person that just says like, you know what? Go revisit the movie. Be a little more open-minded, maybe. And you know what? It's not a perfect movie. As a film, it has issues. It has flaws. But as an adaptation, you know, remember, and and as we talk more about other video games and other adaptations, I don't think the point of adaptation is to be perfect. And a lot of us, I think, want to project perfection. The, The point of adaptation is to be my own term here, respectful and honor. And I do really think this movie, and definitely not fucking Revelations, respects (laughs) Silent Hill. Yeah, I think that at this point, that's all you can really ask, right? Is that something that does the source material justice. I'm somebody that's not terribly concerned with authenticity, so long at the same time as, again, as I've uh, repeated ad nauseum at this point, it needs to resemble the core of what makes a game or a series special. Mm. Um, and I'm somebody, you know, it's kind of, and I'm on record as saying this with like any horror adaptations, whether it's a remake or whatnot, you know, I'm more interested in seeing how a storyteller is going to play with the pre-established toolbox, take liberties with that. So long as it at least feels like it's connected to what it is adapting. Yes. Um, again, you know, intricacies of storytelling and characters and things aside, that's what I'm most concerned with. But yeah, man, as I said at the top of the episode, could not think of a better, you know, at horror game adaptation to film uh, for us to chat about. And I'm so happy that you brought this to the table and, you oh, know, yeah. uh, to tease a little bit for what the future looks like. Uh, we're going to be returning to some other video game adaptations in the near future uh, for Daily Horror Habit. It might be uh, a monthly thing that we get together to do. So can't think too far ahead to the future, but in the short term, why don't you tell the people what we're going to cover next? Well, so for our next installment of this conversation, we are going to be covering not one, but two movies. And that being the two Doom movies, 2005's Doom and then 2019's Doom Annihilation. And we will uh, we will see if in the 14 years in between films, they uh, 
<laughs> they managed to learn anything about how to adapt uh, video games into film. But as always, man, this is an absolute pleasure. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you again in the near future. Hell yeah. And thank you so much for having me on, Jay. I'm so excited for this. And uh, I had a great time talking to you tonight about this. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at Not Funny Jay. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.